We're going to be in 1 Kings tonight, chapter number 2. And last week what we were looking at, we were looking at uh, the, the kingdom in transition. We were seeing the, the kingdom as it passed between uh, David and Solomon. And we started off last week by uh, kind of doing a bit of an overview of the three kings of uh, the United Kingdom of Israel. And we started off with King Saul. He was the one that uh, the people demanded. They wanted a king like all the nations around them. And so they ended up with a, a carnal king. He was a picture of the, the carnal Christian life. It was a life lived by selfish means and self-righteousness. And uh, really, he made a mess out of Israel. He made a mess out of his own life. He spent most of his life persecuting uh, the one man that was actually trying to serve God. And then we had David that followed him up. And uh, David was an example of uh, what the normal Christian life should be like. He continued to follow God. He continued to uh, serve God. He continued in faith. But he made mistakes, and he learned from his mistakes, and he learned from his successes. Mm -hmm. And none of us are perfect. None of us are going to live a perfect and righteous and holy life. But we should aim to. And whenever we fail, we should get right with God and continue serving him. And so with David, he ended well. He finished well. At the end of his life, he was still serving God. Yes, he'd made mistakes. He had bore the consequences of those mistakes. But because of, uh, he didn't turn away from God because of those mistakes or because of the consequences. I think a lot of times people turn away from God because life gets difficult. And a lot of times life gets difficult because of stupid things that we've done. And they blame it on God. And they say, well, if that's the way things are going to be, I don't want him anymore. And David, because of all of the junk that came into his life, he could have gotten bitter. He could have gotten upset. But he allowed the things that he went through to actually bring him closer to God. And even at the end of his life, he was still serving God faithfully, still in love with the Lord. And he was encouraging his son to serve God. And so as we are transitioning now into Solomon... Solomon is a, an example of a backslidden Christian life. He starts off well. Uh, he starts off uh, with a heart to serve God and building the temple and doing all of these things. But we find that he really goes off the rails. Before it's over with, he has married 700 women and has 300 concubines on top of that. That can't be considered a success. Uh, and then on top of that, he actually falls into idolatry and he worships false gods. And so a man who has had a personal relationship with God, a man who has uh, received visions and spoken to God and had blessings and promises and all of these things happen to him, actually turns to idols, which is hard to believe. It's hard to understand. But then even with that, I've seen plenty of believers in my life that started off well, plenty of them who had uh, great experiences in the Christian life and that God was working in their lives and growing them and doing different things, but yet something happens throughout their lives and they turn away from him, they abandon him and fall headlong into sin. I've seen that too many times. Mm -hmm. And you just wonder what happened. What is it that caused them to start off well and then end so horribly? Now, I do believe that Solomon... Uh, found his way back before the end because we find in the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of it that he is kind of giving an overview of his life. He says, I've had peace and I had prosperity and I had wisdom. And so I use those things to pursue after basically the purpose of life, the meaning of life. He says, I withheld nothing from myself. I sought after uh, pleasure with uh, partying and drinking. I uh, I searched after it with wealth. I searched after it with the company of women, all these different things, and all of it left me empty. And he says the conclusion of the matter is this, basically to serve God and fear him, follow after the Lord. And he says that's the purpose of life. We are to, to the best use, the best way to spend our lives is in serving God. Mm -hmm. And so Solomon says, I had all the wealth. That's what so many people uh, spend their lives pursuing. Uh, he had the wealth. Uh, he had the company of women. He had everything that this world has to offer, all of the things that men spend their lives pursuing. And he says, all of it left me empty. All of it was worthless. 
God was the only thing that could fulfill me. And so whenever he got to the end of his life, uh, after all of these pursuits, he it seems like he got right with God at the end. But it's a shame that he had that pathway and all of the the consequences of it. As a matter of fact, uh, the and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, the, the fact that the kingdom passed away from Solomon to Rehoboam and then was split and the kingdom was divided under Rehoboam wasn't all Rehoboam's fault. A lot of times we blame it on Solomon's foolish son, right? But we find that God tells Solomon before Rehoboam's ever on the throne, because you have abandoned me, because you have forsaken me, the kingdom is going to pass from your lineage, from your family, and it's going to be given to another. And so just the divided kingdom was a consequence of Solomon's foolish mistakes. And so whenever we get into uh, Solomon today, um, we're going to begin in chapter number two with David's last words to Solomon. But where I ended last week was that David had set up Solomon very well. David had handed the kingdom to him on a silver platter, so to speak. And I ended by saying, David handed the kingdom, he passed it on to him, what would Solomon do with it? Remember we saying that? And so that was the, the question that we asked. And so what type of kingdom was it that Solomon received? What was going on in the kingdom of Israel when Solomon took leadership? Okay, there was peace. David had defeated all of the enemies round about, Right? So Solomon wasn't going to have to go to war. He wasn't going to have to fight. David had already done that. There's no record of Solomon going to war. There's no record of him having the army. Remember, David from a, a young boy was out fighting Goliath, and he was leading uh, armies, and he was the captain of hundreds and captain of thousands, right? There's no record of Solomon doing that because there was peace. What else characterized the kingdom whenever Solomon got it? Okay, so it was at peace and it was wealthy. It had prosperity. David had uh, defeated all the enemies round about. Many of them were paying tribute to him. And on top of that, they had taken all the spoils from the battles and David had stockpiled even uh, large amounts of resources for building the temple. The gold and the silver and the stones and all these different things. David already had those setting in the treasury. He already had those ready for the temple to go. And on top of that, the country itself was wealthy. So what else was there? You want to take a stab at it? There was unity, right? Whenever David took over the kingdom, was it a unified kingdom? Okay, it was somewhat loosely unified underneath Saul, right? But then whenever Saul died, his son Ishbosheth took part of it, and David took part of it, and then they were still kind of loosely associated as tribes, but under David, it was united into one kingdom, right? And so they had a unified nation, okay? What about spiritually? What was it, what was it like under David? Okay, he had led a revival for the people, and so they were spiritually minded. He had brought the, the tabernacle into, uh, I forget the name of the place. I'll, I'll read about it here in just a minute. But anyway, he had brought the tabernacle in and set it up. He had brought the uh, Ark of the Covenant in. He had led the people in worship. He had ordered the, the priests and the Levites and the singers, and he, he set their religious... Uh, how do I? He put their religion in order, I guess I could say. Right? Mm -hmm. Put the Levites in their courses, the priests in their courses, appointed singers and uh, ones to play on music and how they were going to go about conducting themselves and serving God. He wrote all kinds of uh, songs. He wrote all kinds of uh different things for the people to use in their worship. At least 75 of the Psalms that we have in the book of Psalms, at least 75. David wrote them. Mm -hmm. 
and they were meant to be hymns of praise and of worship for coming in and worshiping God in his presence, right? And on top of that, he had basically banished idol worship out of the place. Everyone was unified together around their religion, around their king, around their nation, all of these things. And so they were wealthy. They were at peace. They were feared by all their enemies. The enemies were vanquished. The, the land was at its maximum size. David had conquered more land than any, anyone before him or anyone after him. And so David was handing off to Solomon this great kingdom that he had worked hard, put blood, sweat, and much prayer and faith into, and God had prospered David because David had shepherded the people of Israel and had sought after God throughout his entire, uh, his entire life, okay? And so this is what Solomon is receiving from David. And we're going to find here in a minute that Solomon looked at this as an overwhelming task, that he wasn't just to fill, fulfill David's shoes, he was filling David's throne. And he says, I'm, as a little child, I don't know how to go out or come in. I don't know how to lead the people. God give me wisdom, mm -hmm. right? And so he had major shoes to fill. But where David was a soldier and a shepherd, Solomon was a businessman, more or less. Solomon was a politician. And he led the people much more like a, a an earthly ruler or an earthly king or politician than a shepherd would, okay? And so a completely different leadership style from David, his father. He hadn't been brought up through all the battles. He hadn't had to deal with all the battles with King Saul. He hadn't had to run for his life and live amongst the Philistines and live in the cave. He, had, he grew up in the palace, right? And so whenever David handed off the kingdom to Solomon, Solomon had a huge responsibility. He had big shoes to fill, so to speak. And the question is, what will Solomon do with it? And so that's what we're going to be studying over the next little bit, is what Solomon did with the kingdom. And one of the reasons I'm bringing all of this up is I believe that for us as Christians today, we can look back over... Uh, church history, if you will, and we can see many people down throughout the time that have fought greatly, that have worked hard for us to be able to enjoy the victories that we enjoy today, for us to enjoy the, the freedoms, the peace, and the prosperity that we have as far as Christians today. If you look back over uh, Christian history, you find that there are many martyrs down throughout time. Uh, if you look even just at the fact that we have the Bible before us today, uh, there are many people who gave their lives just for the translation and the preservation of Scripture so that we would be able to have the Bible and be able to read it in a language that we understand. Okay, Because we'd be in bad shape if we had to learn Hebrew, Greek, or Latin just to read the Scriptures, right? And so people gave their lives for that. Uh, people have given their lives so that we could practice uh, religion as the Bible dictates rather than having to follow after uh, the dictates of a government or of some sort of a religious organization. And so there's been battles that have been fought, there's blood that's been spilled, and there are people who have had to go, uh, go to the stake or uh, go to the cross or uh, be beheaded or tortured or different things just so that we could have the freedom to be Christians today without fear in our lives. And even beyond that, we have many people who have taken a stand for truth, taken a stand against heresy and different things so that we are able to go off of their victories and have the, the freedoms and have the, um, the privileges and the, possess the truths that we do today. And so really, there's the, the phrase, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And that just kind of has stayed in my mind, uh, just that phrase, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, but at the same time, whenever they have fought the battles and we enjoy 
the victories. They they fought the battles and we have the, the spoils. Mm -hmm. It's easy to take it for granted. Yeah, sure and so what you end up seeing happen, much like if there is a businessman who starts a business from the very bottom, he starts out with very little, invests everything that he has, puts countless hours, all of his income, mm -hmm. everything to get a business going, and he works until that business is very profitable, very successful, worth millions of euros, uh, producing a great product. And then one day he gets old. He's no longer able to run it. He passes away, and that business goes on to his children that didn't have to make the sacrifices, that didn't have to put in the work, that didn't have to put in the effort. And what often happens is that the children squander the opportunity and they destroy the business or they sell it off and then they squander the money. And I find that that is a, a good illustration of what often happens with Christianity is that there are some that put in great effort and make great sacrifices and the ones that benefit from it take it for granted and waste it. And this is what we're going to see happening with Solomon. And I think a lot of times Solomon is known for his wisdom. He's known for how rich his kingdom was, that it was a time of peace, a time of wealth. He's known for building the temple that was called Solomon's Temple all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. And even in Jesus' day, they had Solomon's porch, I believe. Yeah. And so his name is associated with that, but he gets the credit for much of what David had done before. Because in the grand scheme of things, uh, he squanders what he's been given. Rather than taking this great head start that David had given him and following after God and serving God faithfully and seeing God grow that to a massive kingdom, instead, he uses it as a business. He multiplies wealth to himself. He squeezes what he can out of his people rather than shepherding them. And then at the end, he dies, and the people don't really lament his death, but they desire to have ease from the pressures that he's put on them. And so that doesn't really sound like a whole big success. And Solomon bridges it from David at its highest point to division with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so anyway, let's look in 1 Kings chapter number 2. And I'm going to read the first nine verses. Uh, I would say to get started, but I think we're already started. 1 Kings chapter number 2. It says, Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. And he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, and the, or that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed after their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, thou knowest also what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the host of Israel, unto Abner the son of Ner, and unto Amasa the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace, and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins, and his shoes that were on his feet, do therefore according to thy wisdom, and let not his whorehead go down to the grave in peace, but show kindness unto the sons of Barzilla the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at thy table. For so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom thy brother. And behold, thou hast, uh, thou hast with thee Shimei the son of Gera, a Benjamite of Behurim, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan and swear, and I swear to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put thee to death with a sword. Now therefore hold him not guiltless, for thou art a wise man and knowest what thou oughtest to do to him. But his forehead bring thou down to the grave with blood. Okay, so in this passage, this is David's last words 
really his uh, last advice here to King Solomon right before he passes. And I've, I've kind of broke this down in this passage that I just read to two different things. It's his last words and it's the loose ends. So basically he's in this last section, you might say, well, why did he read about um, Joab and these different guys? These are the loose ends that David is leaving at the end of his life for Solomon to tie up. We'll get into those in just a minute. But before those, he says, I'm getting ready to die. I want to go the way of all men. Uh, he talked about whenever his child with Bathsheba died, uh, he says, uh, he can't come to me, but I shall go to him. And now he is going to where that child was. And anyway, he tells Solomon to be strong. And I figure that he knew that Solomon was weak. Okay, Solomon was a wise man, but he was weak. As I said, he wasn't a man of war. He wasn't a man that had had to fight and he had to uh, go through all of these pressures and different things. He was raised up in uh, really comfort. He was raised up in a wealthy, older king's household, okay? And so he would have had a very pampered life. And so David is telling him, you need to be strong and you need to show thyself a man or act like a man. He says, I'm not going to be here to mop up your messes anymore. I'm not going to be here to baby you along anymore. So it's time for you to be strong and be a man because leading the nation of Israel, leading God's people isn't for the weak. Right? Is there any evidence? Yeah. Is there okay. any evidence really of that? There is some evidence of it, but by the time Solomon came, he was basically a child of his old age. Yeah. And so he came after all of those battles and all those things that were done as David was an older man. Because remember, it was at the time that the kings went forth to battle that David stayed home. Uh, he had already won enough battles. He was putting it in to Joab's care. He was an old man and didn't want to go fight anymore. And that was whenever he sinned with Bathsheba. That was before Solomon. Right. And so Solomon would have missed David in his prime. Mm, that's kind of funny. Yeah, it, it would be. He's, he's growing up hearing the stories of what dad was like before he was born. And as far as you said, uh, was there any evidence of an apprenticeship? The reason I said yes, I believe there was, is in First Chronicles, I believe it is. It talks about how David is instructing Solomon. Okay, it's talking about how David is amassing all of the uh, supplies, all of the building components for the temple, and he's telling Solomon, this is how it's to be built. This is where I've put this at. This is where I've put this at. He is talking to the, the leaders of the nation. He's talking to uh, the princes and the priests and whatnot, and he is telling them, Solomon's going to follow after me. Help him whenever he becomes king, and he's instructing Solomon on the things that needs to be done. And so there's evidence that Solomon was kind of following around David, preparing for that place. That was one of the things we talked about last week was that whenever his uh, brother Adonijah tried to make himself king, yeah. that he did it contrary to the knowledge that Solomon was going to be the king. Yeah. It was well established, it was well known that Solomon was being groomed to, that he was apprenticed to. So, yeah. so it seems to me like there was a training program in place. But there's a lot of things that he's not going to be able to learn because I don't think he went to the battlefield. He came really in a time of peace. Okay, so in verse number three, what David tells Solomon, in order for him to see success, in order for him to, to do well as a king and as a man, he tells him to keep the charge of the Lord, mm -hmm. to walk in his ways, keep his statutes, keep his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that thou mayest prosper and in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. So David, at the end of his life, after a lifetime of walking with God, 
He says, Solomon, if you are going to be successful, if you want your way to prosper, if you want your kingdom to stand, if you want God's blessings, keep God's commands and keep his word. And David knew this by experience. He had God's hand of blessing on him whenever he served the Lord, whenever he kept the commandments. And he also experienced the consequences and the chastening whenever he lived contrary to God's word. And so he says, I know by experience that God's way works. I know by experience that God's word can be trusted. I know that it's been tested, it's been tried. And if you live according to God's commands, if you live according to the way that he lays out in his word, then your life will be successful. Then your kingdom will stand. Then God will be able to bless the things that you are doing. But at the same time, that is a warning as well. Because it is assumed if you do these things and you prosper, that if you fail to do these things, you will not prosper, right? No man can sin successfully. We can go out and live according to the flesh. We can go out and say, I don't care what God's word says. I want to do it my way. And you'll be like we talked about on Sunday with the prodigal son. You'll end up in the pig pen. You can't sin successfully. And David learned that. And so he says, if you will live according to God's precepts, then you'll prosper uh, in all that you do and everywhere you go. And it's not talking about necessarily material prosperity, as some people would try to make it out to be. Uh, Prosperity, according to God, is much more than just money and possessions. But it is peace of mind, it is health, it is uh, success in our relationships and things, much more than it is of having a fat bank account. Right. Okay? Solomon did have that too, yes. But whenever we say that following the Lord and his word that we're going to be successful and that we're going to be prosperous, uh, people like to think, okay, that means I'm going to be driving a flashy new car and living in a big house. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, because you look through the ones who followed God the most. Uh, for instance, Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. Right. And that's Jesus. Right. Okay? Uh, you look at uh, Apostle Paul. He was a pilgrim and a stranger, right? And so it's not a worldly prosperity. It's not a material prosperity, but it is prospering in God's will and in his way for us. So then as we go on through this, in verse four, he brings out the promise that God had made, but it starts out here with an if, okay? that the Lord may continue continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, if. So God had made a promise to David, and he said, David, if your children take heed to their way and walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man to sit on the throne of Israel. He says, as long as the children of David follow after me and seek after me, then I am going to make you have always a man to sit on the throne. Mm -hmm. So how does Solomon have an heir? How does he have someone to follow after him? How is it that Solomon can leave for his children what his father left for him, right? Mm -hmm. Is by following God's precepts and his word. And so that was David's challenge to Solomon. It's similar to what Moses said to Joshua in Joshua chapter number one. In verse number eight, he says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou, or then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Okay, and that was some of uh, Moses' final words. That was his commission to Joshua. He says, meditate on God's word always. Don't let it pass out of your mind, out of your heart. Follow it, obey it. Then God will make your way prosperous. Then you'll have good success. That is a principle for us if we live our lives in, 
in line with God's word in accordance to what his word says, it is a recipe for us to have success. But likewise, whenever we rebel against God and against his word, it is a recipe for disaster and failure. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but Deuteronomy 17, if you want to make a, a note of it, Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20 gives God's rules for a king. He says, when the nation of Israel has a king, this is what he's supposed to do. Some of the rules was that uh, he was supposed to take the word of God and write out his own copy. Okay, So whenever he became king, he was to write out himself with his own hand, with his own pen, write his own copy of the scriptures. Okay, And then he was to read them every day. Not the entire thing, but he was to read in it every day. On top of that, he wasn't to return to, or excuse me, he wasn't to return to Egypt to multiply wives or to multiply horses or to multiply wealth to himself. By the way, Solomon does all three. Um, he wasn't to, I'm not sure if this is in Deuteronomy 17, but he wasn't to be trusting in the power of men or in, in the power of numbers or in other nations. He was to trust in God and to follow God in everything that he did. Okay? Uh, but anyway, this is David's charge to Solomon. This is his recipe. He says, if you want to be successful as a king, follow God's word. And then we change gears, if you will, in verse number five with the word moreover. And he starts going through these different ones. And if we're not careful, we start reading this and think, okay, David is looking at revenge on his deathbed. Isn't that what it sounds like? You look at these guys and you've got people who have done David wrong. You've got people who have double-crossed him. And David, at the end of his life, is telling Solomon, I didn't kill him, now it's your turn. Okay? But that's not what's going on in this. This isn't David seeking revenge at the end, but instead he is instructing his young and vulnerable son that is just taking a kingdom of dangers that lie ahead of him. So the first danger that he was warning of is if you follow your own heart, if you follow your own way, if you forsake God's word, you're headed for failure. So his first enemy really is himself. And if he goes by man's way, if he goes by his heart, follows after his heart, then he is not going to have a prosperous way. He's not going to have success. But now David is warning of some external enemies, okay? And the first one that he talks about is Joab. Joab has been David's right-hand man. He has been the leader of David's army. He has been the one that's led him to many victories, the one that he put in charge of his army whenever he stayed home and sinned with Bathsheba. Yeah. He was also the one that he entrusted to kill Uriah the Hittite whenever he sinned with Bathsheba. However, if you look at Joab... Joab was a constant source of problems for David. Joab wasn't following after God, wasn't doing things God's way. He was a good military leader, but he wasn't a good follower of God and didn't live his life by godly principles. Instead, you find a man who is willing to assassinate anyone that he thinks may be a, a challenge to him, someone who might be a problem to him. He'll kill him and get him out of his way. He didn't have any problem with defying David's orders about Absalom, and he is the one that killed Absalom whenever David specifically said, do the man no harm, right? And then finally at the very end, skipping over several other things that Joab did, finally at the very end, it was Joab that stood with um, Adonijah, to try to make Adonijah king instead of Solomon against God's will, against David's will. And he tried to stage basically a palace coup here at the end of David's life whenever David was weak and he tried to put Adonijah, a man after Joab's own heart, on the throne, which would have most likely resulted in the death of David and Solomon because if Adonijah had successfully taken the kingdom, he would have killed his elderly father, guaranteed. And Joab stood with him. Now, David tells Solomon, 
Joab is treacherous. Joab is trouble. If you let him live, he is going to be a challenge to you to remain king. And David saw this and was warning Solomon about it. Joab would cause him problems. Joab would undermine his kingdom. And most likely, Joab had been undermining David for years. Why? As David's closest advisor, he also knew a lot of David's secrets that he could hold against him. One of the main ones being the letter that he had received to put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and retire from him. So why is it that David hasn't dealt with him sooner? Well, Uriah, or not Uriah, Joab has too much dirt on him. He has too much power. He has been a leader of the military for a long time. If David tried to do anything, then Joab would create problems for him, right? Not only that, how is David to judge Joab whenever David has been guilty of some of the same things? And so what's going on with this is David is telling Solomon, Joab is treacherous, Joab is trouble, and Joab has spilt innocent blood, and so you need to do something about him. Another thing we often overlook, if you look at the very end of uh, 2 Samuel, just a couple pages back, Well, let me find the chapter here. Nope, 21. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, there was a famine in the land because of the sin of King Saul. David had been the king for many years, but Saul had went and slew the Gibeonites. He had slew a bunch of innocent people, killed a bunch of innocent people, and the blood of those innocent people were bringing judgment upon the land of Israel. Okay? And so David had to um, bring about justice. He had to bring about a payment, a restitution for the innocent people who were slain for the famine to end, for the judgment to end. Okay? So Solomon left some loose ends, or not Solomon, Saul left some loose ends whenever he died, and David had to pay the price. David was leaving loose ends whenever he died, and if Solomon didn't bring about judgment and righteousness, then there would be blood on Solomon's hands, on Israel's hands, and there would be judgment from God on Solomon. So David is saying, if you allow Joab to go to the grave in peace, if you don't bring about punishment on him, if you don't bring about justice because of the things that he has done, then it will bring about uh, punishment to the nation of Israel. And so he says you need to deal with Joab. Then he says on top of Joab, he says there's a man by the name of Barzilla the Gileadite. Whenever Absalom was trying to make himself king, and David had to flee from his own son, Barzillai the Gileadite came out and brought food and brought all kinds of things and encouraged David whenever he was in a time of distress, whenever he was in a time of trouble. This man had helped David, and David promised to repay him. And so he says, don't just remember the bad that people's done. Look at some of the good people that's been a help and make sure that you're bringing them along with you also. So reward Barzillai according to his kindness and allow his family to eat at your table, okay? Then you have Shimei, verse 8, the son of Gera. He was the one that came out and cursed David, was throwing dirt at him. Now, Shimei was a descendant of King Saul. He was a Benjamite, okay? He wasn't a descendant of Saul, but he was of the same family as Saul. He was a Benjamite. And this was a man who was trying to bring a descendant of Saul to the throne. He wanted his family, he wanted uh, Benjamin to be the leaders, the rulers of Israel. And so through that, he is another threat to Solomon's throne, right? This man would be trying to rally 
people together to put a Benjamite on the throne and to challenge uh, Solomon to the throne. And so whenever David dies, he's keeping things secure. But whenever David dies, then there's going to be a risk of Solomon losing the kingdom and Joab will be a threat and this man Shimei will be a threat. Not only this, but this man had cursed God's anointed. He had cursed God's king. And David says, I'm going to have mercy. I'm not going to kill you. And gave him that promise, and David kept his word. But he never said anything about Solomon. And so he's warning Solomon, and he's saying, remember this guy. He is trouble. He wants there to be a descendant of Saul on the throne, and he doesn't hold the David, the Davidic lineage as being uh, legitimate. He's saying David's descendants shouldn't be on the throne. Saul should be on the throne. And so watch this guy. He's trouble. Um, and so anyway, there's these four guys, three guys, three guys that he brings out. And he says, watch for these guys. And so don't just be uh, cautious about yourself and the problems that's going to come from within. You also got some enemies from without. You need to be watching yourself because uh, as... God's man, you're going to have enemies, right? So watch yourself, watch those around you. And so verse number 10, David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the days that, and the days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years reigned he in Hebron and 30 and three years reigned he in Jerusalem. And so that brings us to, uh, we're not even gonna get out of chapter two today, but anyway, that's all right. Verse number 12, it says, Then set Solomon upon the throne of David his father, and the kingdom was established greatly. So that means he was secure in his throne, but now he's going to start dealing with these things that David warned him about. Okay? In the rest of the chapter, from verse 13 to verse number 46, I'm not going to read through it for sake of time, but I want to kind of breeze through it a little bit. Okay? But... Solomon is going to be forced to deal with some of these uh, loose ends that David has left behind. Some of these threats to his kingdom. He's going to be forced to deal with these. And these men thought that they had gotten away with their sins. Okay? There is a verse in Scripture that says, Be sure your sins will find you out. These men, it had been years since they had done their sins, since they had done the things that they're eventually executed for, and they thought that they had gotten away with it, but judgment did come. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we need to remember as well. A lot of times uh, we think that we can live as we please and get by with it, and just because judgment doesn't happen immediately, just because the consequences aren't immediately uh, visible to us, we think we've gotten away with it. And we go on and we think, okay, we're never going to have a problem with this. We're never going to have judgment over this. And we don't repent of it. We don't regret it. We don't have it. We just think we got away with it. But be sure your sins will find you out. That's the thing. A man who covers his sins will not prosper. Okay? And this isn't a, a threat. It's not some sort of a fear tactic or anything. This is for us to take sin seriously. Whenever we sin, it should grieve us and it should drive us to get it right with God, to confess it and to forsake it, not to cover it and celebrate because we got by. Okay, The Bible tells us that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. It tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we cover our sins and we hide our sins, we never deal with them. He can never cleanse us. He can never grow us. And it's not that, I don't want to say this, that he doesn't forgive us. He forgives us at the moment of salvation, okay? But we have to deal with these things in our life if we're ever to grow. If we try to cover them up and think we got by with them, we're not going to be able to grow. We're going to stunt our relationship with God. So whenever we sin, confess our sins, seek his forgiveness, and then seek his cleansing, his help to grow past it, okay? But anyway, the, the first one that we have in this, in verse number 13, we have Adonijah. Adonijah is the one who tried to make himself king before David died. Mm-hmm. And Solomon said, okay, I'm not going to kill you now, but you better behave yourself. 
You better make sure that you're doing everything right. Don't cross the line or you will die. Which was very merciful because of what Adonijah did. He deserved death, right? right? And so he says, okay, as long as you'll behave yourself, you're good. So Adonijah comes to uh, Bathsheba, comes to Solomon's mom in uh, verses 13 and following. And he asked Bathsheba because he knows that Bathsheba has significant influence with her own son, right? right. And he says, uh, let's look here in uh, verse 15. He said, thou knowest that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me that I should reign. He says, I had the throne. All of Israel wanted me. I had the popular vote. Okay? Howbeit the kingdom is turned about and has become my brother's, for it was from the Lord. And so he knew that God wanted Solomon there. He knew he was fighting against God. He says, I wanted to be there. I had myself uh, ready to go on the throne. The people were ready to crown me there. And then it was taken from me. So he's setting himself up as the victim. Mm -hmm. He's trying to play on Bathsheba's emotions. And oh, poor Adonijah. He was the oldest. He was the one that was desired. And he lost this position. He's playing on her sympathies. Mm -hmm. And so I have one petition, deny me not. She said unto him, say on. And he asked Bathsheba, go to your son Solomon and request that he gives me Abishag to be my wife. Abishag was the, the final concubine of King David. It was the one that was supposed, the young woman that came and uh, took care of him in his old age whenever he got no heat. Okay, And so David had never laid with her. David had never... Yeah. But she was his concubine. And so whenever Adonijah comes and says, I have been mistreated, I have been cheated in this, and at least as a consolation prize, can I have that unwanted concubine? And so Bathsheba says, well, that sounds reasonable enough. But in that culture, whenever a king took over, he also took over the women. And so for him to have one of David's concubines was him laying claim to the throne. He is still scheming. He is still trying to find a way to make himself king. And so Bathsheba comes to Solomon and says, hey, your brother came to me and wants you to give him Abishag to be his wife. And Solomon sees through it immediately. He doesn't fall for the, the sorry story and all of that. And he says he is making another attempt to make himself king. He is trying again to take away the throne from me. And so he sends the head of his military, to go and execute Adonijah immediately. By the way, this is the fulfillment of the fourfold judgment of David, that David says he will repay fourfold. David lost four of his children. Okay? And so Adonijah is slain because of this. We come down to verse number 26, and we have Abiathar the priest. And... Abiathar was the one who tried to help Adonijah become king. He stood with David with um, Absalom, but he stood against him with Adonijah. And so Solomon brings that, uh, Abiathar in and says, you deserve death, but because you are a priest and because you stood with David with uh, Absalom, I'm going to let you live. So I want you to leave the Leave the service of the priests, leave the priesthood, go to your own fields, work your fields, live at your house, and you and your family are put out of the priesthood. That's it. And so he is put out of the priesthood, but he is not put to death. He says, go and work your fields, live out your days, and die. I don't want to see you again. It was merciful, but it was also a fulfillment of prophecy. 
because Abiathar was the last of Eli's lineage. And the judgment of Eli was that his family was no longer going to wear the linen ephod. They were no longer going to serve as priests in the temple. And Abiathar was the last of Eli's lineage to serve as priest, fulfilling the prophecy. Then we come down in verse number 28. I told you guys I'm going to go over these quickly. In verse 28, we come to Joab. Remember David's warning about Joab. Well, David, or excuse me, Joab hears that Adonijah has been executed and that Abiathar has been um, Basically. Yeah, defrocked. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And so he says, oh no, I'm next. Hmm. And so Joab, whenever he hears of this, he runs to uh, where the, let me see the, the name of the place. Anyway, he fled where the tabernacle was set up, and he took hold of the horns of the altar, okay? Took hold of the horns of the altar, and basically he was claiming sanctuary. If you've watched the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? He was claiming sanctuary there. He was hoping for mercy that him hanging onto the altar was going to give him some sort of a uh, safety from judgment. And so whenever Benaiah, the, uh, I think it's Benaiah, yeah, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, when Benaiah comes to get Joab, Joab says, no, I'm not leaving the altar. Basically, Benaiah is standing outside of the tabernacle and says, come out, you coward. Die like a man. And he says, no, I'm staying here. If you want me, you have to come after me. And so Benaiah comes to Solomon and he says, Joab won't leave the altar. He says, kill me here. And Solomon says, okay, do what he says. Kill him there. So he goes into the tabernacle and kills Joab hanging on to the horns of the altar. And so Joab's now dead. And we come down to verse 35. Benaiah becomes uh, the captain in place of Joab. He takes Joab's place. And... um, Zadok the priest takes over in place of Abiathar. And then the last one that we have in here is Shimei. Remember, he was the Benjamite that was cursing David. Mm -hmm. And so the king sent and called for Shimei, verse 36, and said unto him, Build thee a house in Jerusalem and dwell there, and go not forth uh, thence anywhere. So this man is another problem. He's treacherous. He's going to be... Uh, building up a resistance against Solomon. He's going to be uh, spreading uh, dissent, I guess you could say, against Solomon. And so Solomon says, I want you in Jerusalem, away from the Benjamites, away from your family. I want you in Jerusalem where I can keep an eye on you. And so he says, build a house, dwell in it, don't leave the city of Jerusalem. You're on house arrest. And so Shimei says, Okay, fair enough. That's merciful. I will abide by that. And he does for a couple years until he has donkeys that go astray. I think it's donkeys. Mm -hmm. He has donkeys that go astray. No, it wasn't donkeys. It was slaves. He has slaves. I was getting... It was Solomon that had the donkeys. Or Saul that had the donkeys. Okay. So anyway, he had slaves that ran away, and he went to pursue after his slaves. And rather than sending a servant or someone else to go get them, he goes himself. He violates the conditions of his house arrest, of his parole, whatever. And Solomon hears about it because he's keeping an eye on this guy. And he says, I gave you mercy. I told you don't leave the city. You left the city off of these heads, right? And so he dies. And so now Solomon has cleaned up all of the loose ends. He's cleaned up these things that David had warned him of, and he is setting very securely on the throne, ruling over the people. He has had to make some hard decisions, which for being a pampered king was difficult, but he made some hard decisions. He's now got new leadership. He's got uh, Benaiah as his chief military man. He's got Zadok as a priest. 
And so he's off to a good start, right? And I guess that's one of the things that we want to focus on here is that Solomon had a great start. He got uh, the blessing of David, of David's prophet, of the priest at that time. He got put on the throne. He was secure in there. He had received uh, counsel from David. He'd received guidance from David. He put down any kind of uh, troublemakers that could have uh, ruined his kingdom at the beginning. And so he is firmly seated on the throne. But then we come to chapter number three, and we're out of time, but I'm just going to preview for next week, okay? We come to chapter number three, and it says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. And so whenever we come to chapter number three, we find that Solomon isn't living according to what David has told him. He's not living according to the way to have success. And so he is making an affinity. He's making an allegiance with Egypt. Does anyone see an issue with David being in an alliance with Egypt? Do we realize that just a few generations prior that they were slaves in Egypt and God had to send you know, plagues to bring them out. Not only that, but Egypt in Scripture is always a picture, a type of sin. And so David is one of, or not David, Solomon is now making an alliance with Egypt and marrying an Egyptian princess. And he is doing it for political power. He is doing it in order to gain which here's the problem. The nation of Israel is God's special people, right? They are his alone. They are to be a witness, a testimony, an example to all lands around them, and they are to be come out and be separate, okay? And as long as they are following God and trusting him, He's going to fight their battles. He's going to prosper them, right? Mm -hmm. Solomon is starting to look for political ways to power and to prosperity rather than looking to God. And that's going to characterize the rest of his kingdom. So anyway, I better stop there or I'll, I'll jump right into all of this and we don't have time for it. Does anyone have anything tonight? to add to or to comment on this. Nothing else. Okay, so just a, a very short summary on this. David cautioned him, follow the Lord, seek him faithfully from beginning to end. Guard your heart and follow it. He told him, be careful what, about what kind of enemies and influences you have around you that's going to lead you astray. Make sure you tie up loose ends. Make sure you get rid of these things that's going to cause you to stumble. And we learned from these men who Solomon had to deal with that eventually sin has its payday, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us to uh, be mindful, to avoid sin at all costs, because we don't want to... Uh, reap what we sow whenever that grows up, right? Yeah. And so that's what happened to these men. They reaped what they sowed later than they sowed, and they didn't like it when it came about. And we don't want to reap the consequences of sin and bad deeds, so it's best not to do it to begin with. Uh, there's the mindset today, this is my final thought, there's the mindset today we have to sow our wild oats. Mm -hmm. But remember whenever you're busy sowing your wild oats, that one day you're going to have to reap those. And so we've got to stay away from that. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the things that we can learn from it, for these uh, truths from Sol or Solomon and his life. And Lord, I just pray that we can learn from the successes and the mistakes, the 
failures of these guys. And Lord, help us, Lord, not to repeat those things. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, begin well, that we would run well, and that we would finish well. And Lord, uh, just thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.